0: listening to amphibicast This episode of Amphibicast is sponsored by Grey Ghost Creations. Specializing in unique wildlife art for lovers of reptiles, amphibians and arachnids, Grey Ghost Creations offers a wide variety of art prints, stickers, pins, necklaces and more. To find more unique original art, be sure to visit Grey Ghost Creations on Etsy at www.greyghostcreations.etsy.com. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining me again. You're listening to Amphibicast. I'm Dandre as your host. And um, in continuing with my my, uh, my efforts to reach out to international guests, I've, I've got a really great person lined up. I have uh, David Brouwer, and I'm uh, really excited because he's coming to us from the Netherlands. And I've been waiting to get someone from continental Europe uh, on the show for quite some time. I'm really happy that he's uh, he's on the line. We're going to talk. We're going to have a great conversation about a number of topics So yeah, I'm real happy about it and hope you guys are too. So before we get into our discussion though, real quick, I just want to the usual stuff that I always mention, I want to thank everybody for the support, the patrons, everyone who left a nice five star review on your favorite podcast players, and of course the sponsors this week. Uh goes a long way. Love the support, love the kind words. Hope you guys are appreciating the um show as we move forward into 2024. And if you're looking to support the show, you're new to the show, or you want to just uh, find a way to um you know show your support for this type of content check out the link in the show notes for the link tree that'll take you to the merch store it'll take you to uh, discounts for in ecosystems and uh, all sorts of fun stuff take you to the patreon page if you want to become a patron for five dollars a month that will get you a shout out at the beginning of an upcoming episode so other than that david welcome i am so happy to hear from you what's going on tonight
1: thank you for having me uh, dan good evening it's evening now here in the the netherlands but uh, yeah i'm doing very well thank you Uh, spring is in the air right now so I'm very excited to go herping again outside, and uh, yeah, the frogs and toads are starting to migrate again to the breeding pond, so uh, happy days.
0: Yeah, it's nice that the weather's finally changing. Here in the northeastern United States, we had, I think it was last week of January, there were nine straight days with no sunlight that were just cloudy, and it was just like absolutely miserable. Now we're in the first week of February, and everything's starting to come, Ooh, wow. come alive again but yeah, it was it was pretty depressing that sounds so depressing then <laughs> it, it was it was thankfully it's 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 over now but um yeah the nice the nice weather's great and you know seeing seeing wildlife seeing animals kind of come out and start to behave uh, the way they did before winter took over and kind of ruined <laughs> ruined everything is, is uh, pretty refreshing but yeah it's great
1: you already spotted your first frogs, or you have to wait a little bit longer.
0: I haven't yet. There is a pond on the grounds that I work on, and we'll usually encounter. I've, there's three species I've encountered. It's uh, the uh, gray tree frogs, the um, spring peepers, and uh, American bullfrogs. Is generally the three that I encountered. I would love to encounter a leopard frog, but I know that that's never going to happen. I remember seeing them as a kid, but yeah, those three are pretty reliable. I'll usually see them
1: nice
0: nice what about in the netherlands what native species do you have that you'll run into
1: we um, europe wise we don't have a lot of them we have about uh, eight, 18 species but we do have a lot of variety we have tree frogs we got um, the edible frogs comparable to you leopard frogs we got the common toads we got a few newt species so still i can't uh, complain especially if you compare with other countries like uh Let's say Scotland or uh, or Iceland or something like that. We uh, we don't uh, we don't have anything to complain. We got the uh, the moor frogs. They are very special. They get bluish during sp- spring, only for a few days. So uh, so those are also uh, very special, and those are most of the times also very early active. So and when they're active, you only have. A few days to encounter them and then the males uh, turn brown again so it's a very spectacular sight to to see these blue frogs here instead yeah. uh, in the still brown environments. so so yeah no complaints then
0: yeah seasonality is such a such a fun thing you know it's amazing how uh, some sort of a biological event can take place over the course of a single night or even in, in the course of a few hours and you only get one shot a year to, to witness it it's amazing
1: yeah exactly exactly so I'm, I'm really looking forward but uh i already encountered the first nudes, smooth nudes um so yeah i think uh, in a couple of weeks uh, it's gonna all go loose so really, really looking forward to that
0: yeah so i mean the the kind of the bulk of our conversation tonight which is one of those this is actually you'd reached out to me and you'd mentioned this um now, I've never encountered this species, in the, obviously never in the wild and never here in the U.S., but um, the Mallorcan midwife toad. I want to get yes, into yes, your exactly. experiences with, with this particular species, and it, it really intrigued me for a number of reasons. Number one, it's it's something I've never encountered, and I love hearing about new species, especially um, other hobbyist ex- experiences with something that, uh, to me, is unheard of, and as well as this very, very unique Uh, stages of development that the species have but before we get into that I was wondering if you could maybe start us off at the beginning with you tell us about your you tell us about your story how did you first develop an an interest in amphibians in general what were your earliest experiences with the natural world where did you start off with and how did you end up where you are today
1: well then I think my story is quite comparable with your other guests so far in your podcast and uh, as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated by nature and, and animals uh, since I was a small child. And my mom still tells me that I hated her for whacking flies in the living room and, uh, and she killed them. And I always t- told her not to do it, but that uh, I can actively remember. But what I do uh, actively remember is that I watched uh, Steve Irwin, Crocodile Hunter on the Discovery Channel. Um, I was catching frogs in my local nature park and the ditch near a football field. Um, yeah, right now I can imagine it's quite a sensitive subject, but I translocated the frogs to a, to a garden pond where, where my parents lived and where I lived uh, at the time. Um, and at the time there were thousands of, of frogs, uh, edible frogs, comparable with your, uh, your leopard frogs, green frogs. Um, but since the, the football field, uh, developed more, they had to drain all the, all the surroundings. So this, this particular ditch disappeared along with the frog so so yeah it's quite scary i'm I'm 31 years old right now but it's quite scary to experience that kind of impact in a relatively short uh, period of time and seeing local populations disappear but uh, yeah, there's also some some positive uh, experiences i went to uh, a lot of herpetological excursions where i saw my first european tree frog i think it was it was around 2002 2003 and yeah, those kinds of, those kind of hands-on experiences are very important for a kid at such a young age there, because I think, I believe that I developed my passion right there. And yeah, I can rightfully say that that passion has become quite an obsession <laughs> right, uh, right now. So, uh, so as for keeping these, uh, these animals, um, luckily I had and still have very supportive parents who grew into the hobby alongside me um the first herb i i kept in a in a vivarium in a terrarium was an asian six-stripe long-tailed grass li- lizard, the tachydromus sex lineatus i think you probably know that uh, that species oh yeah it's uh yeah it's not not as common as it, as it was then in the, the pet stores but i uh i got it from a pet store and unfortunately it was wild caught and uh after a year, uh, it was gone. But uh, luckily, um, I think one or two years later, I got a leopard gecko. Um, I think around 2002, I named her very originally Godzilla, and she's still alive uh, to this day, alive and kicking to this day, uh, almost 22, 23 years later. So, uh, so that's a, a positive uh, side now that these animals can 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 get really old, and yeah, if you have captive bred animals, then these issues of wildcards are belong to the to the past. Um, and in primary school, I always was the guy who uh, who sold s- uh, stick insects to my classmates. And uh, back then, I kept fire toads, lots of other gecko species. Within my friend group, I was always the nature guy. They uh, they nicknamed me Ace Ventura or something like that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Nowadays, those same friends are uh, also enjoying nature. So I'm very humble that I like nature more and make them more enthusiastic about local bi- biodiversity. Um, what's more to tell, after high school, I went to university. I studied biology, eco wildlife studies and animal management. And during my last study in 2016, I believe, I followed a course about bat bed research, beds. And during that course, I met my current employee, uh, employer and colleagues. And luckily for me, we got along very well. Uh, I did some stuff then for the company during my study, and after my internship, I went to Ecuador also to to study uh, uh, frogs. I did my final thesis into a uh, bed box microclimate, um, and that's the same company I work for now as an ecologist for almost six years. It's called natura Inclusive and Founders Nature Creations, and originally we started out as an ecological consultancy, but now we do everything related to biodiversity. We we do research, we give advice, we restore habitats, we do a lot of nature-inclusive designing um, on a very local level, but also we are involved in policymaking on a national uh, level. And my own um, specialty is, of course, uh, herpetofauna, so reptiles and amphibians, but also uh, so bed roosts, especially artificial roosts like bed roosts, bed towers, making existing buildings suitable, etc. Um, outside of my work, I also do a lot of volunteer, volunteer war, work. I monitor the local tree frogs. I monitor lizards in my local forest and nature areas. And in the same park, I caught frogs as a child. I now help with taking good management meso- measurements and, and yeah, hope to stimulate amphibian populations and other biodiversity. And as for my current collection of animals in captivity, I have glass frogs, the, the emerald glass frog, I am really into true toads, like the, the big warty ones. Uh, I've got Japanese toads in the past. I have Moroccan toads. Also, got a few newt species, alpine newts, um, crested newts. And actually, I got my first uh, Tinctorius Tinctorius-Azurius pair two months ago. So, I'm very excited uh, about them. I also got very uh, excited by a podcast with, uh, with Think Tank, I believe. Very interesting backstory uh, of the history of Azurius. And Furthermore, I have some geckos, some chameleon geckos, night lizards, and morning geckos. So, but still, uh, if I have to pick a favorite, then amphibians are probably still uh, yeah like them more than uh, than the reptiles. So, in a nutshell, that is a bit of my uh, my back uh, story. So, uh, so I hope it is a bit uh, a bit clear.
0: That's that's definitely quite the resume that you've got. You know, I, I the bat angle is interesting to me as well because you're not the first person or you're not the, the second, third, or fourth person who's told me about an interest in bats sort of as a kind of a, a side hustle, if you will. Uh, what what intrigued you about bats? I, I have to ask you that because, again, being young, I had I had yeah. the, the same yeah. interest. I was just as much fascinated with bats as I was with, with reptiles and amphibians. What, what drew you to bats?
1: Yeah, of course, they're very mysterious animals because, yeah, I know, I, I think you have them too at your place, but a lot of people don't know they're even there. They live asiders in, in walls and, and in the roofings. Um, so they're very mysterious animals, but we still don't know a lot about them. So that what, what, was, yeah, what, what intrigued me about this, this species group and especially the, the, the roosting side of, uh, of this species group. Because right now here in the Netherlands, a big problem is that we, we have to uh, insulate, we have to isolate our homes in, in terms of uh, the transition. Of 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 energy, yeah. We, we have to um, uh, make more durable homes, but that poses a lot of problems in terms of biodiversity protection because these 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 cavity walls, these these spaces we we we're filling up right now with insulation, are exactly the locations where the these beds roost. So that intrigues me as an ecologist to to find a solution for that and um, design buildings that we can still cohabit with with these beds. So. But that's what really intrigues me the most to to uh, go to a nature inclusive city, as we, we say it right here, where where bats and people uh, can still live side to side. But uh, yeah, that poses some really big uh, big challenges because the uh, the tempo of, of insulation, the tempo of of, of getting these houses more uh, uh, durable, is 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 yeah catching up on the tempo that we can um, that we can. Offer these these bets some some quality rules, so so that's definitely a challenge for the next uh, following years.
0: I can definitely see how it's um and that's interesting about I mean I, here in the U.S. and I know that other parts of the world like um, Asia. I know especially Japan and parts of Europe. I know there's a big push to I guess re- revisit energy policies and, and and construction standards to maintain that. Um, I guess you get the. The most out of your resources i mean here in here in the us we're still kind of backwards but is that some sort of incentive that's happening on a like a national level in the netherlands this like this upgrade yeah. to it is can you can you i'm just tell me yes. about it. i'm just curious about that as well now uh
1: yeah it's 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 a very big yeah i w- would say problem eh, because everybody has the right to to live in a home that um where the, the, the energy bill is uh is <laughs> still still payable so don't get me wrong, yeah. I, I, I really understand the, the reason behind it, but um it has been a problem that hasn't been a subject for maybe the last decade, the last fifteen or twenty years. So it has been um yeah. And everybody knew it was a problem, but um the 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 parties, the, the insulation companies, they all looked looked away and the government also didn't take many measurements, although bats are severely protected here in the Netherlands and, and in the rest of, uh, of Europe. So, but now finally, uh, the last few years, um, there has been some momentum and some, a lot of attention in the media that it has to go in a different kind of way that has to come a solution for this, uh, this issue. And we still, uh, we still want uh, a nice, uh, nice homes where we can pay the energy bills, but we also uh, have, to, have to design homes in a way we can can still facilitate these these pet species to to have a roost within our uh, our cities so uh, so yeah it's a very it's it's a problem that has national uh, attention so that's very interesting it's like a, a classic nature human conflict
0: Th- that brings up another question and um this is something i'd mentioned on this sh- this is just kind of a local observation for me because I, I live in in a surprisingly congested area of of new york i I mean i don't i live just outside i live one county outside of new york city long island is becoming very very overcrowded i mean in my opinion but it's it's getting way overcrowded and the this county and the the county next door and, and even at one point believe it or not queen's county which is part of new york city was considered to be very very rural and we had a lot of space we have um we have a section of pine barrens uh, out on Eastern Long Island, we have tremendous amounts of of, sh- of shoreline. We have, I think, it's over like a thousand miles of shoreline if you combine every little inlet and bay. But wow. um, we had, I mean, the, the development here is is relatively recent. Let's just say within the past, you know, hundred years. Uh, continental Europe is a different animal entirely. So my question is: Is there any free habitat for wildlife in the Netherlands? Is, and if so, is there encroachment? Is there an effort to create more space? What's that dynamic like over where you are?
1: Um, yeah, um, what you see here in the Netherlands is that the city is becoming more and more important for, for, for animals because yeah, we are living in one of the most densely populated countries in the world. Because we still have a lot of um, agricultural practices. I think around 60% of our country is still um, grassland agricultural pastures. But still, we're living in a very densely populated country. We have around 17, 18 million people. But yeah, I don't know if you ever looked on the map, but we are pretty small. So, uh, so, and everybody's living in cities. So, uh, the thing right now is that, that the city's development that they're more and more people take these 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 biodiversity the species is protected species into account so luckily there has been a lot of attention to 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 build new houses to facilitate the species to to leave cavities open to to make these roofs um suitable to make this roof uh, yeah propose entrances for this for the species so luckily there there is something going on there's just there's a shift going from from Building houses only for humans uh, to building houses still for humans, but also with spaces for uh, for biodiversity and, uh, um, and also a thing what's very popular right now is the the management of our uh, nature areas and especially the management of our non nature areas. We have along the roads we have these kind of spaces a few uh, meters wide and. Normally, it's the 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 mowing company just just mowed everything down, and uh, there would be no flowers, no nectar for insects. And now, um, all across the country, these these places, um, these roadside pastures, they are managed in such a way that insects can survive. So they don't mow everything at once. They, when they mow, they um, leave leave some parts unmowed. So, so yeah we see we see we're going on in in such a we're pretty much shift right now so so i think uh, i look i look onto it with uh yeah with some positivity but still yeah there's also a lot of stuff not going uh, as it should go so but still uh, yeah i'm very happy that there is a lot of attention and lots of people uh, are are standing up also for biodiversity they they, they care about it so Maybe a, a few decades ago, uh, the, the subject wasn't on the agenda, but now uh, a lot of civilians also care about their environment. And yeah, that, that also should be the message, right? Uh, then, like, if we create an environment that's good for nature, we also create an environment that's good for us. But I can imagine uh, some different laws apply where you uh, live in New York City.
0: It's an interesting dichotomy because you have... I mean, people by and large, and I can't speak to everybody, but people by and large, you know, where I live, or you know, in in general, seem to be very concerned with what happens in other parts of the world. Like people are worried about deforestation in South America, Africa, Southeast Asia, et cetera, places like that. And at the same token, it's ironic because these are the same people that are allowing a substantial amount of habitat loss in in your own backyard. So it's like you you, you I mean I, I applaud people's efforts to be concerned about preserving wild space. I I get that and I find a tremendous amount of value in that but at the same time, you know, these you're you're building condos where there was woods. You're you're wiping out, you know, massive areas of just woods and wetlands and you're building condos and houses and homes and malls and you're building all this stuff you're not you're not setting a very good example, is basically what I'm getting at, is if you, you want to, um, you know, kind of pontificate about how great it is for, you, know, or excuse me, about how terrible it is for other parts of the world to engage in certain behaviors, we're still doing the same thing here. And it's just my personal observation is it's kind of growing exponentially. And I've witnessed a lot of areas by where I live that were wild areas that were pretty much untouched. They were government land at the local level and then they were sold off and now it's there's nothing there it just it looks completely urban so you know like I know that in parts of Europe I mean you know you're the the development in continental europe and um you know places like the uk and whatnot it's been going on for thousands of years there's just there's been cities there that are you know by and large hundreds if not thousands of years older than, than where we are so I feel like we have kind of more real estate that's up for grabs than you guys i feel like there's more competition for space where you are that was kind of why i'm trying to figure out you know what are you guys doing over there if you have probably like very little space compared to us where we we still have some but we're just you know we're just burning through it faster than anyone can count
1: yeah yeah exactly what i still find very inspiring is also that species can adapt Uh, i once saw a documentary uh, about new york city where peregrine falcons uh, nestled along the, 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 the skyscraper building. So, and I, I recently listened to your podcast about the leopard frogs in, uh, I believe it was near Central Park or something. So, yeah, nature, nature will find a way, as, uh, as Jeff Goldblum <laughs> would say in Jurassic Park. But, uh, yeah, we have to facilitate. We have to create an environment that is good for us with no pollution um, and where there's space for nature and, and, and parks and stuff like that. And in that way, we also uh, create an envir- environment that's good for us. But I can imagine that in uh, New York City, there, like you said, uh, it's it's very congested, and it's it's already going up in in the height. Eh? you don't you already um, use probably all of the space in terms of uh, ground on ground level. So now, uh, more and more skyscrapers will rise, and yeah, you have other problems to uh, deal with. But yeah, yeah, I'm very interested. To, to hear how how that applies in uh, New York, because I think it's yeah it's completely different. We have some big cities here in the Netherlands. We have Amsterdam, we have Rotterdam, but in no way it it compares to the size of uh, yeah, of New York City with with Central Park and and those kind of, of greenery. So it's very interesting for comparison.
0: It it is interesting, and we have had. I mean, you you are you are definitely correct. We've had a, a substantial rebound from the way things were 30 40 50 60 years ago i mean with our marine resources anyway i mean i i yeah, i've mentioned on the show a million times but I, I fish a lot and i see whales and seals every time i go out i mean like close not wow. like with binoculars so <laughs> we've we've recovered a lot it's just when i think about certain speed i've seen i've seen plenty of peregrine falcons too uh, but um like certain species that that seem to do well in a human adjacent environment, um, I'm concerned about things that are like, you know, things that I don't see. Like we we've, we've got we've got this interesting kind of path along the northern shore of the island and going through parts of northern Queens and Brooklyn. Going, there's, it's weird. It's almost like this is a little pathway that if you started at one point and you walked through the other. You would be able to follow a length of woods going the whole time and probably never be seen, but it's in these areas where you see certain species, like um, especially with birds, some of the birds that are more sensitive to human presence, like like um, uh, waxwings, which I saw one for the first time maybe like two years ago. And again, Ooh. it was in this really, really kind of like little island of, of of woods that was kind of serpentining but through through this rural area. But again the species like that that's that's really what I'm concerned about it's like we're not seeing these things on an active level anymore because we're kind of like just sort of banished them to these little tiny little swaths that go through suburban and urban areas and you know again it's just I guess we can't have everything but just to see everything marginalized like that you know that's that's kind of one of those things that bothers me it's just like the the urban yeah. sprawl is it, it, for a while, it was going vertically, and now it's continuing to sort of expand with this ripple yeah, effect. Yeah, for
1: for amphibians, it's even harder, right? You mentioned mentioned some bird species who can still fly to to other suitable habitat, but with amphibians who are not as mobile as as birds or mammalian species, uh, it's completely different. If if yeah, if, if a, a breeding pond or the only breeding pond for some kind of frog species disappears, then it would be the end of the local population. There's no um, no capacity or capability of these individuals to to, to fly to another <laughs> breeding pond uh, nearby.' It's the, yeah, they're not mobile enough. so so I can imagine on on that level, especially for amphibians, it can be even a bigger problem. I have the same here in my, my own uh, city. Um, there's a lot of green space, but what, what, what is typical here in my, my city they remove all the dead wood, so they 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 plant back some trees they plant back some some little bushes some low herbs but they all remove the 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 the, the essential microhabitats that that amphibians need for for thermal regulation for for humidity so uh, so i i had some 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 toad species that occurred here in the city uh, around maybe a decade ago but now uh, you won't find them here anymore so so, and like you said, that is what I do notice. I imagine all the stuff that you don't uh, notice. So, so yeah, if I, I'm from the belief that if we do the right thing, yeah, we know what to do. We know what species need to, to, to flourish, but we, yeah, we still have to do it. We don't have to look away and uh, think, oh, no, that's expensive. And we already got some grass and some, some green uh, space. No, we have to go for, for quality and not for, for quantity.
0: Yeah, the little microhabitats. So they mean so much. It's one of those things that people never really. I feel like when it comes to you know natural areas, like there's 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 what natural looks like versus what people think natural should look like, and true true natural is just utter chaos. chaos. It's just rotten logs and. Fallen brush and whatnot, whereas you know more organized, there's you know there's trails and plants and trees are purposely planted for their looks or or for how you know however they fare during different regions. Which I get, which again I I get that that's also a you know a, another dynamic as well. But I I feel like you need to maintain some of that chaos if you really want to say that you do have a relationship with nature. But now that's just my personal opinion. So I yeah. was. I was wondering if we could discuss the amphibian hobby in the Netherlands, because yeah. again, over, here in the U.S., I feel like we, we all kind of have this very, like very very romanticized view of continental Europe, and I've I've talked to people about um, the ham show, and it, it, from what yeah. I get, it's, it's really not that different from what we actually have here in the U.S., but I mean, what what's it like, you know, the amphibian hobby in Belgium? How have you seen it progress over the past, you know, I mean, a couple of decades? You said you're 31, right? So you've you've been around for you know quite some time, and you've seen the hobby, I guess, kind yeah. of come up. Um, what's it like?
1: Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's very popular on a, a national level. You already mentioned the Ham Show in in Germany. A lot of Dutch people also go to that uh, that show, and uh, a big part of the rest of Europe. And I'm lucky that the Ham the Expo is like one hour and a half driving from where I live. So uh, in in your country, that's like a. That's nothing, but uh, but here it's uh, yeah I'm very lucky, and we also in the Netherlands we also have some big expos. We have Houten, which is comparable to Ham, but just a little bit smaller, but with the same uh, yeah, with the same people and uh, the same species. Um, we have a lot of associations. We have the Dutch Dendrobated Association, which was founded in 1989. Um, I believe it has more than a thousand members, and they um, they finance conservation projects they organize events where you can exchange animals plants between members um, we have the uh, association of la Serta, which was founded in 1942 also uh, with always also maybe a thousand members so here in our country uh, i think we cannot complain about you know, how much people are involved within this hobby and also the amount of knowledge that is being uh, is being gained and um, the, the the associations and the clubs that you can uh, join if you are a beginner. Um, so, I think, and also along with Germany, I think the Netherlands also plays a large role in getting new species into uh, the hobby. I, uh, I listened to your podcast about uh, the history of the Tinctorius azureus, uh, uh, which was discovered by uh, Marinus Hoogmoet a Dutch guy who lived in, in Suriname back then. Um, uh, I think we were also one of the first to, to, to bred these. Before they they went to the states and other parts uh, of the world, so yeah, I would say the amphibian hobby in the Netherlands is pretty big. It's a very popular hobby, and but I would still also say that especially dart frogs are the most uh, most popular uh, amphibians because yeah, you know it you you can have ri- nice uh, vivariums, naturalistic vivariums with bromeliads and 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 nice aeroids and so so I would say those are the most uh, popular species, but we also have some other herb nerds, if I uh, if I can call them uh, that way, who are more specialized in the more obscure uh, species, like the uh, Majorcan and uh, marked Midmark toads, for example. So, so yeah, I think we cannot uh, we cannot complain, but yeah, you still see some uh, development over the years, not only in terms of species, but also in terms of uh, of care. My experience is that the hobby has become way more advanced in terms of the the technical side of the hobby like the, the the lighting the substrates the the design of the vivarium so yeah, i think it's very uh, very exciting but uh, yeah of course there's all, always a dark side uh, to the stories when i go to Ham or how to, i sometimes see species laying on the on the expo tables which i think ah, that's not that's not legal or how did how did you get them here or that's not possible that you you bred them in in captivity so yeah, of course. There's there's good sides and there's downsides.
0: Are there any species or, or locales of species that we have in the U.S. and Canada that you don't have in the Netherlands that you would like to see get there at some point?
1: Um, I would say I'm particularly jealous of all the newt and salamander species you have. Of course, they um, yeah, they are locally in your area, but up until this point, it's pretty hard to get American species. And of course, with all the, the chytrid and, and the B cell uh, fungus, it's pretty understandable that a long time there was a ban on, on, on shipping, uh, shipping those newts and salamanders. But um, yeah, for the rest, uh, I think it's, it's pretty comparable in terms of species from which I can see on Instagram or other social media species that are being kept in uh, the US are also species that are popular at the moment here in Europe and in the Netherlands.
0: One species that I really miss in particular was the uh, fire salamander, salamandra, yeah. salamandra. I, I just, they were, yes. I used to get them at expos relatively inexpensively at the time. And they were always adults. And so they were always probably imports. And I, I just, yes. I miss having them after that whole, you know, train wreck of legislation happened. I just stopped. I mean, I know that they're here. People are captive breeding them, but it's not, the, the presence that it was in the past. Do you, are those readily available in the Netherlands? I mean, they're a native species there, right? Yes. Okay.
1: Yes, they're native, but unfortunately, uh, they're on the verge of extinction. I think 99% of the population has been wiped out. They only occurred here in the southern part of our country, but uh, ju- due to B cell, uh, the, the fungus that is specifically targeting um, salamanders, the population of fire salamanders in the Netherlands has. Um, yeah has become more or less extinct and they they um they caught some individuals from the wild and they we have some um ex-situ projects here in which we breed them but as long as the fungus is still present in their natural habitat it's not uh, advisable to to reintroduce uh, them but every now and again uh, some individuals are still being found in the natural habitat and there is also still reproduction but uh, it's it's such a small uh as much as such a small portion that we yeah i think we don't have reasons to be positive yet but um yeah that's a species that is has been is kept being kept a lot here in uh, the Netherlands. There are a lot of hobbyists in the within also within the uh, salamander and newt association who keep and breed five salamanders and uh, they're they're not hard to keep and breed as uh, at all if you if you keep certain conditions and criteria in mind when when keeping these so so I would expect, looking at the the numbers we have here, that it's a question of time that they become more readily available in the US uh, in the short uh, short term.
0: Yeah, it'd be interesting to see where that whole thing ends up in the next five or ten years. I just feel like, I mean, it could go one of two ways. I mean, some one way that I mean the best way would be somehow someone figure out figures out a way to. I don't know if there would be a a way to genetically modify salamandra salamandra in such a way that it can become resistant or more resistant to B-sal, or, I don't know, maybe they all just end up completely existing in private collections the way that axolotls did. I mean, axolotls are functionally extinct in the wild, and it wouldn't surprise me if, if honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if many of the caudate species went extinct in the wild because of B-sal.
1: Yeah, it's becoming a big issue because the, the B cells still spreading also in Germany and our neighboring countries, Belgium, uh, Luxembourg, so that's becoming a, a big uh, problem, but they, they, they did find out, with in the case of fire cell they did find out that if you um, keep them at 25 degrees Celsius for a, a period of time, that the, the fungus in the skin dies, but yeah, of course, that isn't applicable in the wild uh, situation because yeah, you you know they're uh, normally occur at you know local cool situations, very humid, very relatively cool. So I think it's not uh, not applicable in the wild to 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 get those uh, those temps up. But yeah, who knows? They're still very well uh, researched and investigated, and you hope that. Somehow these salamanders develop something in their microbiome in the skin that uh, that is that is capable of, of of fighting this 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 fungus. But but right now it's not looking uh, looking good. Also outside our uh, our country, so we uh, we do have some very strict hygiene protocols. We we disinfect our shoes and um, our, our field equipment, but it's impossible to 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 apply this on all other people who are going through these habitats, because normally uh, these habitats, they're just open forests. There are a lot of hiking trails, so you cannot prevent people from, from going there and maybe spreading this, this, this disease on their, on their foot shoals or or shoe soles. So, so that's becoming a big issue. So there is a lot of attention and uh, the people who are very, um, are very interested in the newts and salamanders take, precautions they get precaution measures but the the, the people the, the the hikers who get there once a year or something like that they uh, they don't know about the problem so it only takes one person to to go through a habitat with these spores and go to a, to another forest the same day or the next week i don't know how long the spores live and then uh, the problem is, uh, is spreading
0: yeah it's not good well Let's get let's get into the kind of the, the target species of tonight because this is yes, again you you yes. reached out to me with this and this is very very interesting and um, yes so I'm gonna try to pronounce the the binomial name as best I can you you correct me if I'm if I'm if I miss the mark all right so I'm gonna say Alides mulitensis the Majorcan midwife term. yeah okay
1: yeah all right I good. would say that is pretty uh, pretty right so.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I got it yeah you know, I, I I realize actually while while I was prepping for this, I actually, I had seen this species before in a book. I have this ancient animal encyclopedia from probably like 1987. And I do remember seeing an illustration of this particular species in it. And at the time, it seemed very unusual to me then. and It still seems unusual to me, but I mean, and lightness, this is a species that's, that's important to you. You work with it. How did you first get involved with this species and why would you choose to work with it?
1: All right. Um, so we're going to talk about the Mallorcan midwife toad in, in Catalan, a language spoken in some parts of Spain. It's called El Federet. And as I understand, it means little ironsmith for the metallic sounds of, of hammer blows that the males resemble when they call to the females. And it, it probably is my favorite frog, not only because of its looks, but also its behavior and care, but also because of its, its backstory and life, uh, life history. It's a very 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 unique species there's a, a tree frog like locomotion the adults uh, the, the larvae are almost stream type they live in cold uh, ephem- ephemeral mountain waters um, and as you mentioned the scientific name is Alitus muletensis. i don't know if i pronounce it correctly because yeah i think it's a it, it, it's latin or greek so uh, nobody knows how to pronounce it correctly but I understand that Alitis means tied up in Greek, referring to the, the egg masses on the, the male's hind legs. and muletensis is, is the name after the cave it was first found, but we get, uh, we get onto that uh, later. Um, the genus of Alites, midwife toads, comprises of six species, and they are called midwife toads because of their paternal care. The males carry the eggs. and it's called midwife toad but mid-husband toad would be a better name i uh, i suppose um the males carrying the eggs has a a lot of advantages it protects the eggs against predators and also protects them against extreme weather conditions dry conditions desiccations um and also important is because the males carry the eggs for a time um they also skip the early larval stage so uh, the larvae they can swim right away after hatching so that's also a big advantage very vulnerable stage uh, within frogs is just after they hatched from the egg um, so that's that stage is, is skipped um, they are very primitive frogs in the sense that they are very old they also look very old they have huge eyes um, they live across europe like i said the genus of aletus midwife toads consists of six species Um, Five species live in Europe and one species lives on the African continent, in northern Africa, in Morocco. And they all pretty much live around small water bodies, rivers, lakes, water tanks, fountains, um, other artificial water bodies. So it is a genus, although they um, have this adaptation of the males carrying the eggs that are still pretty um, dependent on, on, on water. Um, you have six species of, of midwife toads in, in, yeah, in, known to science. You have the, the common midwife toad, which occurs in western, middle, and south of, of Europe. In the Netherlands, it's only native in the southern part of our country, where it lives in, in quarries and rocky stream valleys. But it is also introduced uh, across our country, where it does very well in urban environments. In fact, there is a, a population in the middle of the city of Amsterdam and the city of Utrecht. And there they use city gardens, garden ponds to, uh, to reproduce. And uh, there's also a population in the, the Zoo of Artists in, in Amsterdam, where it lives in, in animal enclosures, in the lion enclosures. And apparently, these enclosures uh, are also very suitable for amphibians. And I know that in the UK, this species has introduced too, where it lives uh, on cemeteries. Some other species, you have the Catalonian midwife toads, which was rec- until recently considered a subspecies of the common midwife toad, but was recently described as a separate species. We have the Betic midwife toad, which occurs in southern Spain. We have the Moroccan midwife toad, which occurs in the northern part of Morocco. Um, and we have the Iberian midwife toad, which occurs on the Iberian peninsula. And this is a very different one. It looks very different. It's very compact. It has a fossorial ecology, likes to dig. It has very short stocky front legs. So, so this is one that's, that's, that's also really different from the rest. But the one we are talking uh, about right now is of course the Mallorca midwife toad. That is the species we are focusing on. And this is a species that lives on the uh, island of Mallorca which is an island in the Mediterranean Sea. And yeah, the first time I saw this species, I remember very well, I was on a summer holiday with my parents in Germany. I, was, I think it was in 2003, so more than 20 years ago. I was like uh, maybe 11 or 12 years old. I was going through my um, amphibian book called The Amphibians of Europe by German authors Nullert and Nullert. And I saw this frog that, that really caught my attention. And I thought like, yo, what a cool looking thing. And that it had a picture of the animal itself and also the picture of the, the Rocky Slope habitat on the island of Mallorca. It looked very surreal and exotic. And at that point, I decided that I wanted to see it in real life. And I, I couldn't have dreamt knowing that it would would squeak and, and jump in my own living room uh, 18 years later. So uh, so when I was around 11, 12 years old, uh, I, I first saw the species and thought like, wow, this uh, is really uh, is, is catching my attention
0: can you tell us about the life cycle because i'm i'm, I'm looking at, t- at the pictures the first one that grabbed my eyes is obviously the male dragging this egg mass around what's the life cycle yeah. like and then the natural history and the breeding behavior
1: yeah 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 first of all it's one of the rarest frogs in, uh, in europe if not the rarest frog species in europe which is uh, quite an achievement since amphibians in general are not doing all too well uh, here, especially in Western Europe. And it's estimated, the estimated population is around 1,000 to 1,500 breeding pairs in the wild on the island of Mallorca. Um, compared to other species of this genus, the species is very slender. It's has very long limbs and digits, long fingers and toes. There's no webbing between the fingers, and it's very um, adapted to rock climbing and living in small crevices. I always compare it with, with, with bouldering. I don't know if it's a popular sport at your place, but right now uh, it's very popular where people climb these walls. And that's, uh, that's yeah, where, where I always compare this species with. They don't have um, adhesive beds like tree frogs, but it can still can jump very well and can climb extremely well. It is the, the smallest species of the, the genus. It's, it gets to about three to four centimeters. So um, for the US people, that's around. I believe one, one and a half inch, so uh, pretty comparable to an average size dart frog. So, so not a thumbnail, but more like Azurius size, the sized size, the smaller forms of, uh, of Tintorius. Uh, They've used huge, huge eyes with a vertical pupil. The, the females are less compact and slightly, slightly larger than the males, but it's still very hard to, uh, to differentiate the sexes actually like dimorphic features like males getting nuptial pets or something so um so yeah if you have two adults next to each other if you know one is a male and one is female you can see there's a slight difference but apart from the males carrying the eggs it's very hard to differentiate especially when they're younger what, what sex uh, they are um in terms of pattern they are light brownish beige beige with dark spots but i also um saw some patternless individuals that a biologist called Bobby Bock um, uh, mentioned in a book. So apparently also in, in nature in situ, there are forms of populations that completely lack spots and only have uh, a light brownish um, skin color. The ventral side is um, completely light color. They don't have any spots. So, so that's a big uh, big contrast. Like I said, it's, it's nice to, to, to tell something about the island that they, uh, they occur. They occur on the island of Mallorca, which is pretty, funnily enough, exactly the size of Long Island. So, so then you might have an idea how, how big or how small this, this island is where this species occurs. And this, uh, this island belongs to the Balearic Islands, together with Menorca and Ibiza. And yeah, as well as Ibiza, Mallorca is known as a, a party island. My parents went there when they were younger. They, they went partying and, and drinking and stuff like that. It's a very, uh, a very touristic island. A lots, lots of tourists go there, lots of German tourists, lots of English tourists and also lots of Dutch tourists. But of course, uh, yeah, we want to talk about uh, the frog and the, the history of the frog. And that is that is quite special because it all started in 1974 when two scientists two two scientists of the archaeological museum on Mallorca, they stumbled upo- upon some um, amphibian remains that had been found in a cave in the Muleta cave. So yeah, now you know where the name Muletensis comes from. It's from the cave where they first found these uh, remains. And these remains were around 14,000 years old. So it was like, like fossil remains. And it quickly became clear that they were dealing with an, an unknown species from the, the, the Pleistocene. And in the 1979, so five years later, they formally described it as the Balearic toad, with the scientific name Freen muletensis. And Balea, um, um yeah, it's from the the, the island, that the Balearics, Majorca. And Freen means means toad in uh, in Latin. Um, and they gave it the species name muletensis after the cave where it was found. And they assumed because the only thing that were found were fossil remains, so they assumed that it became become extinct after the appearance of man on Mallorca in ancient times, around 5000, 7000 BC. That's, that's quite a lot of uh, time ago, quite a long time ago. And uh, there was a biologist called uh, Juan Mayol, if I pronounce it correctly, and he was very interested by this, by this find. And, um, and he found... In 1978 so one one year before they described this 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 fossil remains he found a, a midwife toad, but he thought it was a common midwife toad so he uh, he fished a little animal from his collection jar and uh, it was astonished to discover that on closer inspection it was yeah something completely new and uh, yeah little did he know that he uh, had discovered a living fossil and not long after that they went on an expedition on mallorca and they succeeded to finding living tadpoles and and freshly metamorphosed young toads in the in the Serra de Tramuntana. That's that's uh, the mountainous range in uh, in in Mallorca where they where they found this these tadpoles and, and young uh, young frogs and toads. This was quite a scientific sensation because uh, it, it it was like going to siberia and and seeing uh, seeing a woolly mammoth walking around in the flesh on the tomb ride was something like uh, like that so so and what i also find very what i also think is very funny is that it was on such a party island a very touristic island that this 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 find was 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 done so the contrast couldn't have been bigger so so that was very uh yeah, very sensational that this that this frog was uh, was found and you can say that it's some kind of Lazarus taxon. So it's like um, a species that was thought to be extinct. And yeah, many years later, they found out that it was still breathing oxygen on the island. And uh, they, they did a lot of studies. They, uh, they had a population of the species in captivity. Um, and a few years, few years later, after describing uh, the frogs from the fossil remains, they placed it in the genus Aletus based on its reproductive behavior, biochemical properties, bone uh, features of the skull and genetics. So this is a species that is endemic to, to Mallorca. It lives in the, the ravines, the canyons, caverns, water remains and puddles between the, the boulders. Um, and these, these, these puddles are the water remains from winter precipitation. So in the winter, it rains a lot in this mountain range. And during spring and summer, um, slowly, this all dries, dries out, and then you get these puddles where these toads um, reproduce in. Um, and these water features are very rocky and mostly without or very sparsely vegetated. There's almost no vegetation. So it's a very you know, hospitable environment, one would say, for an, for an apple to, to, to feed or to live in. Um, and in winter, this water also may be flowing, but during the reproductive season, this water is, uh, is stagnant. Um, it's also a relatively cold location. Uh, research has suggested that the species is active between nine and twenty-five degrees. Um, like I said, it's um, mountainous ra- uh, range, around ten to 850 meters above sea level. So compared to other locations of the uh, on the islands, it's it's quite uh, quite cold. And that's why we get to to the next thing that the reason why it still lived at these isolated isolated locations is that the, the Romans, when they visited the island, they brought some invasive species with them, and one of those species was the viperin snake, and this species of snake, it's, it's, it's a kind of water snake comparable with, with, with garter snakes or the, the water snakes you have, uh, you have in your country, and they also brought weasels and Iberian marsh frogs um, to the island, and normally this, this, these species are very, they, yeah, they like heat, and These isolated locations in this mountain range were probably not suitable enough. So this is one of the reasons that the Mallorca midwife toad was able to survive uh, on the island. And a big disadvantage of introduction of these viperine snakes is that they feed on the larvae and the adults of the Mallorca midwife toads. And the Iberian water frogs, they they feed on the adults too, the larvae, but they also compete for food with uh, with its larvae. Uh, Actually, there's a movie on YouTube. I, I don't know if you... You can put a link or Instagram or something, but there's a hiker or rock climber, and he has a water frog in his hands, and he's in one of these gorges in Kenyas. He squeezes a water frog, and a midwife toad that is still alive pops out of the water frog's uh, mouth, so that's, that's pretty amazing. So, so yeah, it quite, was quite a sensation that this species still uh, survived. You also have the island of Menorca, which is a neighboring uh, Balearic island. Where the species was present uh, in ancient times, but the same thing unfortunately happened here too, where the Romans brought invasive snake species and uh, and water frogs to the island, and here, unfortunately, the species went extinct because there were no uh, vertical ravines that could have served as a refuge against these uh, snakes. To, <laughs> to 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 make things uh, even worse, it was <laughs> uncertain how long this small remaining population would survive in the future on Mallorca, so. Therefore, luckily in 1985, some animals were brought to the zoo on the Channel Island of Jersey by conservationists of the Dural Wildlife Conservation. And by that program, it was possible to breed and distribute the species so that they could be released back into the wild uh, in 1989. So, yeah, they, they bred pretty, pretty successfully. Thousands of tadpoles and young tones were released under scientific management in, in ravines where the species had disappeared and where. Uh, measurements were were taken to remove um, uh, snakes and and frogs Um, but in the meantime a previously unknown enemy had spread in europe and this was the the kittrick fungus said the 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 bd fungus and it caused mass mortality uh, events among frogs and by the time it was scientifically described in 1999 it was already too late because Fungus had also come to Mallorca with, uh, with the abandoned toads and the Mallorca midwife toads from the captive breeding program were probably infected by um, other amphibians in the facility and then reintroduced on the island along with the fungus. Um, so in 2002, the first infected Mallorca midwife toad was discovered. And yeah, that was, of course, a big, uh, big problem. And they tried to uh, treat uh, the larvae and place them back into these, these rocky puddles. but the larvae would would get reinfected again, probably by by other juveniles that were still present uh, um, on site um, but still uh, this this story has a happy ending or at least uh, a little happy ending a little bit because the fungus was eradicated with with Furcon s, which is a very powerful disinfectant, and they did this by rubbing these rocky pools they 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 drained them with water, drained them of water, and scrubbed it with this uh, this disinfectant and it surrounds with this uh, it is disinfected so uh, initial efforts to eliminate the infection in the larval uh, res- reservoirs with itraconazole were um, unsuccessful but with the treatment of tadpoles with uh, with the vercon s was, uh, was successful so i believe that from the five pools where the chytrid fungus was present four of them um the, f- the fungus was eradicated and remained so for two years so Right now, the species occurs in a lot of the original uh, sites, but also in new man made create habitats on so new locations where it was reintroduced, like water wells for cattle with some stone walls, um, underground water cisterns with steep walls. And through capture mark recapture of their own uni- with their unique dorsal patterns, they um, found out that the species can live up to 80 years in the wild, 18, not 80, 18 but on average it's like 3 to five years and in captivity their longevity is around 22 years. So, yeah, that's quite a quite a long story. Then I hope you're still were with me, but uh, it's quite a <laughs> it's quite a interesting uh, backstory and sensational especially on an island uh, as Mallorca.
0: It's a fascinating story. Uh, that, that's amazing. How did you I mean, how did you come to like through all this information? I mean, obviously you take a very substantial interest in the species, but I mean, how, how, how did you find all this out? I mean, it's, it's, you have this massive knowledge base. Like, where, where did you start looking for this information, and how did you kind of you know, find out about this th- throughout your interest in the species?
1: Uh, luckily, because it's such a, a rare species, the it, uh, uh, species has been very well investigated and researched on uh, the island. So, there are a lot of research papers to be found also freely on uh, the internet. So in those papers, you can find a lot of information and um, also on websites like the UIUCN website and some other websites, books. There have been some very good books of this species where all this information is, uh, is disclosed. So, so it's not, uh, it, it, wasn't, uh, <laughs> it wasn't quite a challenge to find this, uh, this information because the species is very well, uh, well studied. So, so that's very nice.
0: Yeah it just it's amazing how there can be so much information about one species and then with another species it can be so significantly lacking but that's amazing that there's this much info about out there about them what about uh, mating and reproduction because i mean obviously that's a big i mean it's it's in the common name what's their what's their breeding cycle like
1: um yeah of course it's a very emancipated species <laughs> with the male uh, carrying the eggs and the the female uh it uh, yeah, doesn't have to do all the work. They have relatively large ed- eggs with small clutches with an average around 15 eggs per clutch, I would say. Sometimes more, sometimes less. Especially if you compare it with the other species in the genus, the, the, the eggs are quite large and the, the clutches are quite small. So I think that is, uh, that is quite the, the, the ev- evolutionary adaptation. Um, during spring and summer, they make a heavily sound, if I say so myself. It's not loud at all. It's like a, a bell, a bell whistle like sound, almost like a, a submarine sonar. Male, fo- male uh, species of male specimens vocalize to call the cult of females. But what's also very interesting is that in this species, the females vocalize too. So when I had the species first in captivity, I was like, hmm, do I have males only? But the females uh, use it too, especially when they are pregnant, as if they would like to say to, to, to the males, like, Hey man i got some eggs to, to fertilize uh, and carry around come and uh, come and pick them up so so that's very interesting they make a very nice nice sound it's not loud it's very uh, pleasant to the ear but um but the females vocalize too and what's very interesting is the the way where the male grabs the female they they you know, he grabs her around the waist which is i believe it's called in and plexus where they where they yeah they don't do it in the the axillary region, so not in the armpits, but in, uh, in, around the waist. This is also very, um, um, yeah, it's uh, very known for the primitive frogs. The more advanced frogs, they use axillary uh, and um, And after the male uh, grabs the female by the waist, the female lays the eggs while the male at the same time fertilizes them, and he takes them over in his thighs and hind legs until they, uh, they hatch. And they carry the eggs, the males carry the eggs around probably three to four weeks on average. And what's also very cool is that the moment that the, the, the tadpoles are ready to hatch from the clock, uh, from the clutch, the males sen- sense these movements and they, they go to the water feature and they, they drop the, the, the clutch of eggs. So they, they time it perfectly uh, well. Um, the eggs, they start out as white and they turn black if they are fertile. And if they're unfertile, they, uh, they turn a bit yellow, but um, that's not a, not a problem. When in captivity, I always let the infertile eggs in the water dish for the larvae to eat. So they, they, they are perfectly adapted for, for surviving in very scarce conditions. So they eat everything they, uh, they can eat. And these unfertile eggs, just like with dark frogs, with the, the, the obligate species, the egg obligate species, it's very, uh, it can be very beneficial uh, to the larvae. And, like with other species, the first clutch of female is often infertile and it's being, uh, being dropped. Um, and the tadpoles are also very interesting. They start out really small, less than, yeah, I would say maybe three quarters of an inch. But they are very, very ferocious. They, uh, they can become very large. They, they, grow to, they can grow to three inches, so like seven and a half centimeters, uh, especially if they, uh, they overwinter, which also happens in the natural situation. And they also have some other kind of apata- ap- adaptations. They can even change color when there's uh, more predation from snakes. They, I don't know how they research this, but they, they can, they can uh, turn lighter to more pale gray with, with terms of predation when, when vibrant snakes are uh, present. And they, uh, they are more dark when, when the situation is more, uh, more safe. So probably because there's more, uh, more contrast between the, the substrate of the Breeding ponds and uh, and their skin color, and they also have the adaptation that if viperin snakes are present, that's also really cool. They they develop faster, they get longer muscular tails, and they also show uh, show avoidance behavior when snakes uh, snakes are close. So so yeah, that's that's yeah that's really cool. It's like <laughs> it's also an, again a lot of information, but it's like yeah unique breeding behavior uh, as per se for the. For the midwife toads, but the, the Mallorca midwife toads also has some really particular adaptations in terms of uh, of breeding behavior.
0: That's a unique adaptation, becoming sensitive to uh, to an invasive species. I, uh, people don't give animals enough credit for being able to adapt to things like that. I mean, that's amazing. That the species has been only been there for what Roman times, you said, right? So, what should we say? Yeah. Maybe. 2 two thousand years maybe we'll say um wow i mean <laughs> that's that's amazing to be able to adapt in such a short amount of time to something so far and that's crazy
1: what- yeah they always uh, they always say like a hey, evolution is a process of thousands of years and in this case it, it is thousands of years but but still relatively it's it's short uh looking at how long a species is uh, is present so so that's also probably one of the reasons that it could still survive on these isolated uh, yeah, uh ravine locations.
0: Yeah, especially, I mean, compared to millions and millions of years, it's just a blip in the grand scheme of things. W- what percentage of the eggs are, are fertile? I mean, I'm just mulling this over my head. So you've got the male kind of dragging this egg mass around for however long they need to you know, incubate before they metamorphose into tadpoles. Is there... A higher success rate in captivity versus the wild—that you're aware of, or is it consistent all the way through?
1: Uh, that's a good question. I think it varies both in the wild and in captivity. I've had um, egg masses or clutches myself with a hundred percent fertility rate, but I know that also in the wild, there um, not a hundred percent of of all eggs are um, are fertile. Especially the first clutches of females, that it's I think it's the same uh w- with dart frogs they they yeah the, the reproductive cycle has to uh has to start and yeah so i think the, the older and and uh more bigger more um healthy the female gets more more well fed the the larger the fertility rates of the of the egg clutches and it also can depend like on on local conditions if it's the female didn't feed properly or something I can imagine that also has an impact on the fertility rate. And of course, the male also has to uh, fertilize them externally. So if the male condition is not, is not good, I can imagine that also uh, um, impacts the fertility rate. And what I also experience within my own animals is that if, if a pair is, uh, is, is in the, mid, in the midst of, uh, of mating and producing eggs, There are lots of other males and females who try to uh, take part as well and try to disturb them. So I think that also, uh, if if, if they are getting disturbed often, I think that also uh, um, has an influence on the fertility rate of the clutch.
0: How did seeing them in situ help you with your captive husbandry?
1: Uh, Yeah, a lot. I had the opportunity of 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 going to the island of Mallorca i think it was two years ago um i went with a friend danny we do trips like these uh, together and it's always a compromise because he likes birds a lot and uh, and and herbs not so much but and i like uh, um, yeah reptiles amphibians and yeah maybe not birds as much as he does um, so it's always a compromise between going to, to the birding sites and the herping sites within the limited time, amount of time we have. But, uh, but luckily, these birding sites and herping sites are also uh, are often, yeah, birding sites are often good herping sites and vice versa. So, uh, so we arrived in 2022 and uh, yeah, like I said, it was a party island and uh, it was a really fun contrast between the, the tourism in the cities, the clubs, the, the drunk people and uh, the raw nature on the rest of the the island So firstly, we went to the Serra the de Tramontana, the, the, the mountainous ridge, um, of, of range of range of one of the known uh, locations, very touristic locations, and uh, it was a very steep hike of around four to five hours, not an easy hike at all. Uh, you had to uh, man- move through narrow crevices. It was sometimes a bit uh, claustrophobic. But still, it was a very cool walk. Uh, we saw vultures, we saw lots of birds of prey, we saw martens. And um, we had to climb boulders and rocks. And uh, yeah, we <laughs> it was a very interesting uh, walk. We encountered, even we encountered some, some school children. Later on, we encountered naked people doing this uh, the same trip. So it was a very uh, interesting uh, walk in many ways. But of course, what we came for uh, was the Mallorca midwife toad. And we found larvae and we heard adults calling in deep crevices, but we weren't able to um, yeah see them fully. so. Our mission uh, was, was still to see an adult uh, midwife toad active in all of its glory. And uh, some days passed. I think we were on the island for about a week. And there was still one last chance to, to go to another part of the island, of which I won't, of course, disclose the exact location. But it was the last evening that we were uh, on the island. It was the last chance to see an adult toad. And uh, yeah, because we still hadn't seen one uh, fully in the flesh. My friend was, uh, was already very tired tired and not motivated, and I told him, no, no, it's just a, just a 15 uh, to 30 minutes walk, but uh, in fact, <laughs> it was a three to four hours walk, but still, uh, uh, yeah, he, he um, enjoyed me, and luckily, uh, after this, this amount of, of effort, uh, we found some artificial water cisterns where the species has been reintroduced, goats of larvae, and uh, yeah, we spotted uh, some adult frogs so i couldn't be any happier to to also find them uh, in the wild and on the way back to the car we also saw a pygmy owl so my uh, my bird loving friend was uh, was also happy again but to answer your question seeing in the wild it, it gave me a lot of inspiration to to keep them better also with the with the substrate more rocks more rocky substrate and yeah when you've seen their natural habitats although they only occur at yeah a few locations right now compared to, um, yeah, in ancient times when they were completely uh, on the uh, probably present on the whole uh, island. So it's probably not completely representative for the habitat. Still gave me a lot of inspiration to uh, to improve my, uh, yeah, especially the hardscape in my terrarium. Uh, so uh, so yeah, it gave me a lot of inspiration and it's it's pretty amazing to to see an animal that you uh, that you care for in captivity to to see it in the world especially at at a site like uh, like that
0: that leads me to my next question how do you set them up in a vivarium from the the parameters let's just say temperature humidity to the build the, the scape. walk us through what you need to um, care for one properly in terms of We'll we'll start with the vivarium and then we'll get into the rest of the husbandry too
1: yeah yeah sure um yeah first of all although it's rarity it's legal to keep this uh, this species if you can prove that your animals come from a captive captive bred stock you have to fill in some paperwork but it's not any different than you do for uh, for dart frogs you have to keep track where animals go um how many individuals you 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 have and and go to to other people um, and since their breeding is so easy, there's also is no need for any wild caught specimens uh, anymore. Um, I believe the species got into the hobby through a zoo. And the, the Dutch stock where my uh, animals are originating from are from a German zoo who, uh, who sold animals to private keepers. Apparently, it was quite normal back in the back in the days. Um, I got my animals three or four years ago as adults. And i keep them in a 24 by 18 by 24 etc. Um in that vivarium i keep around five or six females um, and the males i keep separate for a reason i will uh, i will get into a little bit later on um, like i said they're perfectly adapted to to climbing so um, i read a lot of care reports where they say no height is not that important but my experience is that if you offer them these, uh, these, these type of heights, like 24 inches high, they will use it if given the opportunity. So if you have the opportunity to, to offer them this height, I would still, uh, I would, yeah, I would still do that. Um, and one of the most important things, uh, especially for all midwife toads, but also for this species is micro, uh, And we, we mentioned in, we mentioned it, uh, in a talk a little bit before. But it's very important. This is that you do not use a soggy substrate, because midwife toads are very uh, sensitive for too high humidity. The the males with the eggs they need moist hides, but it's very important that there are also uh, sufficient dry dry locations where they can uh, where they can can stay. Um, and good ventilation is also essential. I use the, the, the standard Exoterra screen uh, top with hundred uh, percent ventilation. Um, yeah, like I said, they don't like a soggy substrate, so I use a gravel uh, a gravel substrate. A loamy substrate may may work as well, but what's very important is that it doesn't get it doesn't get soggy. It drains uh, it drains well. So I know normally gravel wouldn't be the substrate to go uh, to go for when, when caring for amphibians, maybe for firebelly toads, but with this species, it works uh, really well. Um, the gravel should not be too sharp. And the size, uh, size should not be too small so that if ingested, it causes problems problems. Um, and the advantage of, of using gravel is, is that it's easily washable, because, like I said, they're very um, prone to infections, prone to chytrid, prone to soggy locations. So the advantage, advantage of, um, yeah, of gravel is that it's easily washable, so you can keep it very clean. So those are the yeah, are the basics.
0: What about diet? Do they eat crickets or fruit flies? What would you, what would you feed them? And if like, do you add a supplementation to it as well?
1: Yes, yes. Um, they just eat the regularly available crickets. Um, I feed them crickets. I feed them cockroaches, also the dubia roaches, a few times a week. Young frogs more often. But like you said, uh, they all have to be well gut-loaded um, and dusted to prevent any metabolic issues like metabolic bone uh, diseases. And I would say they're very generalistic feeders. Um, they eat a wider range of arthropods. So they're not uh, not picky at all. They, uh, everything that <laughs> that appears in front of their faces, they shove it into their mouth. So they're not not uh, picky at all.
0: And with with the tadpoles, when you have, I guess, the, the male will deposit and the tadpoles will come out, how, do you raise them in the tank? Do you pull them? How do you, like, yes. what goes into tadpole care?
1: Yes, yes, that's very, um, that's very interesting. I, uh, I, the first clutches I got, I raised them in the tank in a water dish. I can really uh, uh, recommend of using a sufficient sized water feature in, uh, in the tank. Mine is around one foot I believe in diameter with around two or three inches of water. Um, it has a rock in it for them to climb out. I refresh it once a week. And for a, a, yeah, for a midwife toad, they're also quite aquatic. They use the Water dish every night after the lights go out, but also during the day. And the males, uh, males use the the water dish to to water the eggs to to keep them humid. So uh, so hygiene is very uh, very important. Uh, they defecate a lot in the water dish. Um, but yeah, if you offer them a large enough uh, water dish in the tank, the males will readily drop their clutch in this 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 water dish. And I did a little experiment where I raised the uh, uh, yeah the larvae in uh, in a water dish with, with the, in the parents uh, tank and outside in an aquarium. And they, the larvae in the, within the, uh, small water dish in the tank with the parents actually grow, yeah, grew much better than the, the larvae outside the the tank. So that was very interesting.
0: What do you attribute that to? Like, I mean, is it possible that like just the higher density of frogs, you know, per, per the volume of water, like that might've been a catalyst. Like what, what do you think the reason behind that might've been?
1: um yeah that's a good question um i think it may also have to do with um with the defecation of the parents i read some articles of other amphibian species and also with reptiles i think it's the same that maybe it boosts their immune system if the if they are in contact with where maybe certain um essential bacteria or other um micro microbes or something that are beneficial for their um, immune system are also in the same uh, water. So maybe that's the reason why they fare better in a non-sterile um, environment.
0: So what's the long-term, like the future of this species in the hobby? I mean, I'm assuming from what you're telling me based on how easily it is to breed, do you see this as becoming kind of like a long-term staple in the amphibian hobby?
1: Um yeah, I think so, because it's very easy to breed and it's not hard to, to keep at all. What I forgot to mention is um one of the main components of keeping this species successful successful is giving them loads of rocks with dark crevices to hide in with different humidity and temperatures, uh dry locations. So as long as a water feature is present, drought is not a problem, but to wet conditions is but to to answer your question yeah i think it's a it's a really good species to uh to begin with um you can keep them at room uh, temperature around uh late 60s 70s degrees fahrenheit uh, my apartment is very my apartment is very well insulated so few there's not a lot of fluctuation but they can handle a lot of uh, fluctuation i i know of a guy who Keeps the larvae outside year round, even if there's ice uh, on his aquarium, and they still uh, survive. So it's a pretty uh, hardy species. So that's why I think it's 100% suitable for beginners. And yeah, it's also a species that has been um, being bred in captivity for a long time. There are a lot of reintroduction projects. One of the few amphibian species that went from a critically endangered IUCN status to vulnerable, and I think now it's it's come back to endangered, but still that says uh, something. I think in 1991 uh, it was present at 11 sites. They found like they counted like 15,000 larvae. Um, And now the range and the numbers of larvae uh, has doubled in the last maybe 30 years. Now it's present at 35 uh, sites, so 11 sites compared to 35 sites. So in situ it's also doing uh, really well, but it's still, uh, yeah, in the hobby, I think this species will, uh, will remain. For a long time, because it's such easy to breed, although the genetic diversity is relatively uh, unknown. But what I read in some papers, um, it's not not too bad for a species that is on such isolated locations. But but still, we don't know for sure. But in the wild, uh, there are still a lot of threats. There are uh, uh, water dams that are being built, agricultural pesticides. Now we still have the invasive species. Um, climate change can pose a problem because uh, due to climate change, the the canyons, the cool canyons where it lives right now, it can be more suitable for the for the snakes and the, the water frogs to live in. So, in the wild, I'm not uh, not as positive uh, for for its future. Um, a lot of recreation recreation right now, like I said, a lot of people walking through uh, these canyons, disturbing the habitat, uh, mostly during daytime, but but still uh, they walk through these puddles with larvae in, so uh, also with dogs. So. Uh, that can uh, can pose a pose a problem in the future, but for the hobby, I would say it's uh, it's it's yeah it's 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 a species that will uh, will still be bring being bred uh, the next
0: few decades. It is encouraging. I mean, from what you've told me, um, I mean, I, again, I, I I came into this knowing pretty much little to nothing about the species and the the genus in general as well, and um, that's amazing how much of an effort and how, I mean, realistically how much of a success story it's been. Over the past few decades, I mean, I, I hope that the long-term success is is good in you know captivity and the wild because it's just the behavior and the life cycle is just so it's just so interesting. I I want to you know I want to wrap up on on a question that I've I've asked people from time to time about the value of of hobbyists when it comes to uh, setting setting policy or helping people who make decisions make decisions based on adequate information. So, I mean, you mentioned early on in the discussion, you know, you're an ecologist and you've kind of, you've helped out with, um, I I guess, you know, uh, assisting decision makers and people who, um, you know, are influential in making, you know, policy decisions and whatnot. I mean, what value does the hobbyist have in the grand scheme of things here when it comes to assisting people like, You know politicians and then people who make decisions and whatnot what value do hobbyists have in that world and can the scientific community and the conservation community benefit from a nice hybrid relationship we'll say between each other
1: yeah yeah i think uh i think you're touching on a very interesting subject which is very underrated um Normally, yeah, one would say keeping em- animals in captivity. You can, le- but it's better to to leave them in the wild. But what I do know is that um, taking care of these animals in captivity, we learn a lot of, about their behavior. Um, also, a lot of things uh, with with the chytrid fungus, uh, uh, with regards to the species, we learn a lot of, of from them while keeping them uh, about their, their parental care, about hatchling success, clutch success. So. I think definitely that the hobby can be really important and that that effect shouldn't be underestimated i have a lot of uh, other friends other ho- other hobbyists and i'm quite certain that they are probably the experts on their on their in their fields on that species so so they know more than than maybe other generalistic science uh, scientists with all due respect so i think it's very uh yeah it can very help also with with policy making that uh that we still have these species in the hobby, and and as long as people are willing to write about and and make people enthusiastic about it, so so outside of the knowledge, uh, the knowledge factor, the knowledge criteria, I think it's also um, very important to to show people um, that these species occur within our borders or outside our borders or within uh, our continent. So I think it it works uh, works in multiple multiple ways, uh, not only gaining knowledge but also People uh, yeah, interested in nature and, and showing them what, what incredible species we have uh, on this planet and, and also in the, their own country. Most of the people don't even know what, what species live in their own town or their own country. So, so yeah, I think it's very, uh, very interesting to, to, to make a bridge between, between keeping animals in captivity and also protecting them in, uh, in the wild.
0: You know, one thing I will say throughout the course of of doing this for the past four years and all the people I've interviewed, I've interviewed the majority of of people, both people who are hobbyists and people who have a, um, uh, scientific ecology or conservation, whatever background. Whenever I've had someone who did both, someone who was a hobbyist and worked in either conservation, ecology or something like that, um, it was always more than the sum of its parts. Meaning when I had people from the scientific community who did not keep frogs, which was rare, but I had a few situations, they didn't understand every of the little subtle nuances that scientists who did keep frogs recreationally did. And it was it was something I didn't really consider much. And then the more I went throughout the show, the more I started interviewing people, the scientists who kept frogs at home or had a background in keeping them knew well, i don't want to say new more but, but i mean that's not really fair to say but just had a much more intimate understanding of every single aspect of the animal's life with exactly comparison to more generalist type of people who just happen to work with frogs
1: yeah i completely uh, i completely agree because yeah if you compare those two types of scientists if you will um, yeah, the one, one, one type lacks the, the practical knowledge and how to apply, um, the knowledge from literature, how to apply it in the field. Um, so I think that's a, that's a big, uh, that's a big difference and a really, a really big advantage for us. Keepers who are also, um, um, yeah, doing research in the field and advising policymakers how to protect species. So, so yeah, I think you're completely right.
0: Where do you see yourself? In five years with regards to the hobby or, I mean, are there any specific goals, like a, a, any, a new species you'd like to work with? Or if you'd like to stay with this particular species and continue to contribute to the knowledge base, where, where do you see yourself in five or, or 10 years from now?
1: Uh, oh, that's a good question uh, Dan. I haven't, I haven't thought about uh, that, but yeah, I would say the the last one, last thing that you mentioned, just keep on doing what I like. and. Uh, uh, Follow my heart, and and yeah, just protect species and and also spread uh, spread the word. I think uh, if anything, it's more more important than ever to also help um, people who normally are not that much into nature. Um, what what kind of animals live in their surroundings and, and make people enthusiastic about it? So so maybe that would be my goal to 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 yeah to to, to spread the word and. and also do something like like not only give advice to policymakers but I'll also do 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 stuff myself like like uh i don't know uh, make my garden more 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 insect friendly or something like that so so i think the time has readily arrived that people have to do something and if you want to uh, make people do something they first have to get interested in the subject and 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 know what they miss and know what they can do in a positive way so so yeah i hope that's a little bit of an answer to your question i, I can't look into the future but uh, that's how i see myself Just just going on like i'm doing right now and as far as the hobby goes uh, of course the list of species that you want to keep and learn more about uh, is incredibly long and is getting longer as the hobby uh, progresses so uh, i think we don't have enough uh, time in one life to uh, to keep all the species that you want to keep and learn, uh, learn from. So, but, but still, uh, yeah, I I guess it's the same uh, with you.
0: I I think that's a great answer. And I, I admire the dedication. I I admire people who are, I guess the term would be like a lifer. I've had the pleasure of getting to know so many people and certain people have kind of come into the hobby and then gone. And I understand that happens. It's just, it, it, it's it's a normal thing people will come and go for a number of reasons, but uh the dedication that's that people like you and the commitment to this world, like to me, it's like whenever anybody says like uh, you know I want to be doing the same thing, I want to be still in this world it just it always grabs me because it's like you can really see the passion that people like you and people I mean so many other people have had and you know I me mean myself too. Just have to like sticking to you know sticking to this and and committing to living in this world and making it a, as better of a hobby and as better of a scientific understanding a college all that stuff just to add that goal like to me that's that's impressive and that's what I appreciate from people like you and so many other people I've had on the show.
1: Yeah, and especially the younger generation. I'm sure um, you experience it with your kids as well, and your kids are growing up in an environment where. Uh, with a dad with, who has a lot of frogs, but a lot of kids, uh, I see it also here in my neighborhood, they, they grow up with an iPad in their hands and they're playing uh, Minecraft and they know nothing about uh, nature. So I think it's also very important to, to learn kids about, uh, about this, uh, this subject. There's actually, that's a funny story. There's a Dutch herpetologist. He's also co-author of probably the best book of Europe- European herbs at the moment. He's a biology teacher at a high school. He's called Bobby Bock. And um, he also has this species in his classroom to show to his students. So just a regular biology teacher. So everybody who um, has biology with him as a teacher sees this, this Mallorcan midwife toads. And he even went with some students to the island, to Mallorca, to, to look for them in the wild. And, and students were very enthusiastic about it. And now it has become sort of a tradition that he goes to, uh, he goes to uh, some part of Europe to go look for animals on a sort of herping trip with, with, with students of him. So so I also thought that was very inspiring. Like, it's not important to focus on uh, the people from now that, that, that have to be enthusiastic about these kind of subjects, but especially the younger generation who are, who are growing up in a very digital environment.
0: Yeah, and I think that being in the field and being able to experience something for what it is versus what we think it is 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 incredible too because i feel like so many people have this romanticized view of the way things are based on the way they see it through instagram tiktok whatever i mean even you know photography magazines as, as much as uh, i hope that doesn't piss off my photography friends but when you see an animal in the wild and you realize like well wow, this is it i'm actually seeing this it's just such a it's such a different experience. It might not necessarily be as visually stunning. It might not be this perfect encounter that you think that you might have or you think that you should have, but it's it's still incredible. Like I told you, like I mentioned before about seeing a waxwing, I, I yeah. was totally unprepared for it. <laughs> I'll be honest. I, I saw it for maybe four or five seconds, and that was incredible. I mean, better than seeing it in a book, better than seeing a video on TikTok. Just seeing it out there doing its thing. In nature to me was just an incredible experience and I agree with you 100% that getting younger people out there into the field seeing these things up close is just it's just you you cannot put a put a price on how valuable that is
1: no exactly so so I hope yeah with your children I don't know are they really into nature at the moment
0: Uh, I mean yes and no I, I used to do a, I used to do a frog talk at my younger daughter's school every uh, every spring, but now, she, I mean, she's older now, and they don't offer that program at this grade level. It used to be something that they offered during, um, like, the younger grades, and she's past that now, so, um, it, you know, it's just not something I do anymore, but, but I mean, I'm, I'm, both my kids have an understanding, but, you know, the other thing is it just kind of, like, it just kind of like a, like a regular thing to them, like... I have to explain to them, like you know that, like not everybody has thirty frogs in the basement. And no, (laughs) it's yeah. So it's kind of like everyone's kind of just used to it. It's just sort of a regular thing. So I mean, they've had a couple of friends come over that were their jaws jaws just dropped, and they were really impressed. They're like, yeah, this is nothing. This is just what my dad does. But I'm, I'm fortunate and i also appreciate the fact that you know not not everybody is as into it as i am but at the same time even if you're not into it you can still respect the fact that somebody else is so you know my youngest daughter is really into small mammals and that's what she knows about. she's all about their husbandry and whatnot and i'm very proud of her for that i'm you know proud of the fact that she cares for them well she keeps them you know she she does all that stuff and i hope (laughs) i hope she picked that up for me but um yeah, it's something that I encourage, and you know, again, at the same time, I also understand that it's just it's a different lifestyle. You know, it's I'm sure the majority of listeners, yourself included, understands that it's a little a little unconventional. But no, I try to encourage my kids to do you know, anything that they take an interest in. But um, yeah, it's it's nice when we're out when we manage to get out together as a family and we see something that's uh, that's unique. Yeah, no, that's
1: that's that's good to hear. If I ever have children, I uh, also want to, you know, not to not to force them liking nature, but still go out with them and learn them everything uh, about nature and especially, of course, amphibians. So, yeah, I think uh, and, and it's also very, very positive here in the Netherlands. We we have a lot of young people. Um, I get into contact with people who are, who are even younger than I was uh, when I got enthusiastic for for, for, for herbs. So that's very encouraging so that's that's very positive but still uh, also a lot of uh, people in 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 primary school who yeah who've never seen uh, some kind of bird or who don't even pay attention they 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 don't recognize trees or don't know what what type of tree it is so so yeah i think it uh, it's a two-way two-way story
0: yeah and i place a lot of value in that i know that people are critical of any type of animal performance whatever you want to call it and I, I can understand why people get upset about that. But at the same token, these animals serve a very important purpose. And even if some even if a presentation inspires one kid to go out and do something constructive, I, I see tremendous value in that. And I think that that's one of the other things that we have to consider is, again, not everybody's going to have access to wild spaces or a chance where you're going to be able to like really immerse yourself in, you know, in a place where there's no, there's no other human beings around, especially in urban areas. And I think that things like that, animal, live animal presentations, I think are incredible because you get, you get to engage people. You get to engage the imagination of of, of young people. You get to inspire people and show them, wow, this is incredible. This is, you know, I mean, how awesome would it be? I mean, again, this is just, you know, kind of me like you know, tooting toot my horn, horn, I guess. But like, I mean, it would be so cool if like 20 years from now, you know, somebody come up to me and said, hey, by the way, I saw one of your presentations as I was a kid and inspired me. Like I that would totally make my day. But I see value in that stuff. I see value in education. I see value in sharing the natural world with people. I see value in having a chance for people to one-on-one encounter these things up close and really appreciate them for what they are because that's only going to inspire people to want to do good things.
1: Yeah, exactly. I couldn't agree more <laughs> that before I uh, forget to say if li- listeners want to know more about the species, I really can recommend a book that was published last year and it's called Midwife Toads and it's by Chris Michaels, Jaime Bosch and some other people I forget the name about. Sorry, sorry about that. But uh, it's, it's like a complete work of, of Midwife Toads. So it's a very, uh, very interesting book if people want to know more But of course. If they want to ask specific questions, they can always uh, contact me through Instagram or other social media. That's, uh, that's okay, because I can imagine we can uh, talk for uh, maybe a three or four hours more. But <laughs> it, has <to> be, <laughs> it has to be an interesting story as well for the people to listen to. So, yeah, so, yeah that, well, that was the last thing I wanted to say before I forgot.
0: I, and I want to thank you for, for taking the time. Uh, I mean, you've, this has been such an enlightening episode. I've learned so much about this species. And, um, I'm sure you know, all you guys listening, I'm sure that you guys have enjoyed this too. Cause I, the diverse content is just, it's so much fun. Like I, I know that we focus so much on the poison frogs, but getting outside of that zone and, and discussing a completely new group of species or a completely new species is just so interesting. So I want to thank you. Um, David, are there any other yeah, links? My pleasure. Or- my pleasure, Dan. Yeah. Are there any other links or anything you want to mention before we, uh, before we break?
1: um yeah, I think the book is really really interesting um I still have the video of the frog uh in the, the water frog that that ate uh a, a, a myca midwife toad, but I don't know if that's really uh really interesting for people uh to see, but if they look on youtube and they search for allfadadet or uh Mallorca midwife toad, there's loads of content uh which which is very interesting to to watch so uh so so yeah, that will be it i think
0: amazing all right everyone i want to thank david again for coming on and having this great talk this was so insightful i I love i love learning new content and stuff from, from new people this was absolutely incredible and now i'm i'm totally totally going in a deep dive with this species now i mean even the island itself is beautiful i was looking at it on google earth and um it's an amazing environment so I hope you guys enjoyed it again, um, you know doing some longer episodes and I love getting people from outside of the US and um, you know if, if you guys have any input anybody uh, you know over in, in Europe or wherever I'm always interested in hearing about it. I love hearing different perspectives. I love hearing from different people in different parts of the world. So again I want to give David a big shout out and a big thanks for taking the time to come on and talk to us this week and hope you guys enjoyed it I did and I will catch up with you again soon.